Greetings to you all. Welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special shout out to the reformed members of Back to Ashes. Denise S., Seven Leaf Clover, Through Scrutiny, Samantha Place, Lisa Radford, Tina Mead, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Mana Ash, Norm D.W., Christy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's niece. I'd also like to thank those that donated to my GoFundMe so that I may find a new home to live in. That link is still open and taking donations. No pressure. The info to the GoFundMe and to become a member will be listed below in the description box. If you are new here and like what you are hearing or haven't done so yet, please remember to subscribe, like, share, and comment. This not only helps the video to be pushed into the YouTube algorithm, but it will also remind you of every time I upload a new video. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Unsolved Mysteries Volume 13. Right after this intro and ad will play, I'll read the first case and ad will play, and after that there will be no more ads within this video. Who Killed Carol Rothstad? Carol Rothstad was a student at Illinois State University and a member of the Delta Zeta sorority. She was a psychology major. It was Christmas break in 1975, and a majority of the students had left already, but she decided to stay to get some extra shifts in. On December 22, 1975, she was last seen walking home from the bars in Normal, Illinois, where ISU is, and located. The following day, on December 23, 1975, she was found in front of the sorority house, bloody and beaten with a skull fracture and alive but unconscious. It has been reported she was beat with an 18-inch railroad tie 12 hours later. Carol succumbed to her injuries the following day, Christmas Eve, and she passed. Her killer is still unknown to this day, 48 years later. Other sources report that the murder weapon was given to an Illinois State University professor where it was put on classroom display, but then it was later lost by police. It has been reported that the suspects were never interrogated and leads were never followed up on. Hopefully, the new technology we have with DNA, Carol can find some justice. Who is Poinsett County John Doe? On August 12, 2001, a fisherman fishing in a ditch off the St. Francis River in Marked Tree, Arkansas, found a young male's partial skull in a wooded area along the river, near the old siphons on Lockendam Road. Marked Tree is only 39 miles from Memphis, Tennessee. The boy was suspected to have been aged anywhere between 16 to 19 years. He had a slightly healed fracture to his nose, and all of his upper teeth had been broken off. His mandible was not recovered. He was believed to have been deceased for a year before being found in his African-American. The cause of death is unknown, but very possible due to homicide. According to a 2023 article from KAIT-8, Brad Falcons, a lieutenant with the Poinsett County Sheriff's Office, said the skull was the only remains found at that time. He said now the area the skull was found in is all underwater. His birth year is believed to have been between 1982 to 1985. We've requested some missing persons that have been brought to our attention, but... We haven't been able to identify him yet, Falcon said. The police department has partnered with Ulthram to link Poinsett County John Doe to genealogical DNA. I am from Arkansas and grew up in the area the boy was found in. I was curious one day and was looking at missing children. I am a teacher and a separate incident had me concerned about missing children in the state. I was shocked to see Poinsett County John Doe because I had never heard of him before. 
in such a rural area, most people knows everyone. So I do think that if he was local, he would have been identified by now. I understand that it's not literally impossible, though. From what I could tell, no missing persons in Arkansas matched his description. And while I think that he was probably maybe been cross-referenced with all missing persons in at least our bordering states, I couldn't help but wonder if something had been missed. No disrespect to L.E., but the offices around here are small and overworked and definitely lacked important training during the time of PCJD's discovery. Unfortunately, this is just about all of the information I could find about him, but I'm excited that Ulthram is working on his case now. It's a relatively unknown case, though, so he is lacking in donations. I would love for this boy to get his name back and for his family to have closure. I teach children his age and have had many BIPOC and underrepresented children in my classroom, and I feel an attachment to him. He deserves justice, but at the very least, he deserves his name back. To this day, the partial skull is the only part of him that has been recovered. Who Killed Shame Weiss on Halloween of 1986 Shame Weiss was a 15-year-old boy attending a yeshiva, a school for religious Orthodox Jewish people, in Long Beach, New York, when he was found dead in his dormitory bedroom on November 1, 1986. On the morning after Halloween of 1986, police were called to Torah High School of Long Beach, Police were called to the school because Weiss was found unresponsive in his room after he didn't come down for the Sabbath prayers. In the dorm, the police found Weiss dead on the floor. The window was open and a memorial candle was burning. The police later learned that these are rituals that Orthodox Jews perform when someone dies. Weiss was killed on Halloween night in a frenzied attack with a hatchet-like weapon which was never found. He had been stabbed multiple times in the head, neck, and chest. No one is sure why Weiss was killed. Weiss was one of only two students who lived by themselves. There was no signs of a break-in, a struggle, no signs of sexual assault, and nothing was stolen. There have been several theories as to who killed Weiss, including a mentally ill man who had attacked older people in the area and Halloween pranksters. Other possible theories include it being an anti-Semitic attack done by an outsider, Chaim being silenced because he was abused or witnessed someone being abused within the yeshiva and they didn't want it to get out and being killed in an envious rage by a fellow student who was jealous of Chaim's academic success, popularity, and single-room privileges. In 2015, police announced that they believed that it was a staff member at the school or one of the other students. In 2017, Shame's father gave an interview in which he disclosed some interesting facts leading up to Chaim's murder. In July of 1986, Chaim had called him from summer camp crying and saying he wanted to come home, which was very out of character for him. In August of 1986, Chaim was in Europe visiting his grandparents and the principal, Rabbi Avram Cooper, called the West household a few times, asking when Chaim would return. Another time, the principal asked for Chaim to meet him at his house to talk alone. Mr. Weiss said that Chaim was reluctant to tell him what the meeting had been about. With this information, it seems like the most plausible theory is that Chaim was being abused by his principal and was silenced before he could tell anyone about it. Who Killed Jill Dando? A just-released Netflix documentary, Who Killed Jill Dando?, looks set to revive interest in one of Britain's highest-profile unsolved murders. Born in 1961 in southwest England, 
Jill Dando went on to become a beloved newsreader and presenter across several of the most recognized shows on 90s UK television, including The Holiday Program and, ironically, Crime Watch. This latter series dedicated to harnessing viewers, assistance in solving major crimes. Dando was a telegenic, empathetic, and personable presenter and enjoyed widespread popularity with the public. After her death, many media outlets referred to her as the girl-next-door type. She was pretty, sunny, and enthusiastic. On the morning of the 26th of April, 1999, Dando traveled by car from outer London, which she resided with her fiancé, Alan Farthing, to a shopping district where she did some errands, and then to the well-heeled neighborhood of Fulham, where she still owned, but now seldom visited, a terraced house on Gower Avenue. Her purpose in returning to her house that morning was simply to collect, in passing, some faxes sent by her agent. According to the documentary, nobody else knew that she was planning to be there that day. Dando parked her car on Gower Avenue, stepped outside, and walked up the short path to her front door. There she was, coldly murdered, shot dead at close range by a single bullet to the head. Shortly afterwards, a passerby noticed her collapse on her doorstep and called an ambulance. A neighbor later reported having heard a single scream but no gunshot. A traffic warden nearby had noticed a blue Range Rover speeding away. Another passerby had noticed a brown-haired man in a three-quarters length dark overcoat running away from Gower Avenue. A visibly sweating man was later reported to have been seen standing at the nearby bus stop. These, along with the ballistics evidence left at the scene, were the only clues as to who killed Jill. The Theories There was a huge media and public interest from the start in this case. Gun crimes were, and mercifully still are, relatively rare in the UK, and never before had the country experienced the murder of a high-profile TV presenter. Enormous attention and pressure consequently attended the murder investigation, led by a senior detective called Hamish Campbell, and multiple theories were spread in the press as to who the killer might be. Could it be someone who knew Jill? Police eliminated this idea early on. Her fiancé, her ex-boyfriend, and her agent were, among others in her life, quickly ruled out of suspicion. Could it be a stalker? Like many TV personalities, Dando had received unwanted attention from weirdos. However, using the large number of CCTV cameras in London police were able to track Dando's movements back through the city that day, and they concluded that nobody had been following her either on foot or by vehicle. Was it a crime of opportunity? Did somebody carrying a gun chance upon Dando in Gower Avenue that morning and murder her on impulse? Was it a revenge killing? Had anybody thwarted by a Crime Watch investigation decided to take revenge against the show's presenter? If so, how did they know she would be at her house that morning? Apparently, weeks go by between her visits to Gower Avenue. Could her killer plausibly have lain in wait for long without drawing attention to themselves? Was it an international revenge killing? A week before, NATO forces had bombed a Serbian TV station in Belgrade, killing a number of people, including journalists. Was this murder so soon afterwards an act of vengeance against the UK as a NATO member state? Dando had recently fronted a televised appeal on behalf of Kosovan refugees fleeing Serbian control. Could this have made her the specific target? Again, though, how could a suburban assassin have known that she would be at Gower Avenue that day? The Investigation and Trial Police quickly released an artist's impression of the man seen sweating at the bus stop. 
This composite image lodged a public awareness as the face of the killer, but seemingly it actually rather quickly led to a dead end. A man called James Shackleton spotted a resemblance to himself in the image and came forward to say he'd been in the area running that day. Seemingly, he was duly eliminated from suspicion. Months passed before police settled on Barry George, a.k.a. Barry Bolsara, as their suspect for the killing. An unemployed eccentric, he lived close to Dando's house in Fulham, had a history of sexual assaults against women, had previously been arrested while attempting to get close to Princess Diana, whose resemblance to Dando some had noted, and had an interest in guns. In his home, police found a photograph of him wearing a gas mask and holding a replica gun. Also in his home were among a dirty clutter of possessions. Dozens of unprocessed photographs he'd taken of random women in the streets. Magazines celebrating guns, magazines featuring Jill Dando and a dark overcoat, in one pocket of which police forensic investigators claimed to have found a single particle of gunpowder residue. On the basis of this evidence, Barry George was charged with Jill Dando's murder, for which he stood trial in 2001. After several days' deliberation, he was found guilty by the jury and sentenced to life imprisonment. In the end, though, he spent only eight years locked up. Retrial From the beginning, there have been doubts about George's guilt. Assessed by experts as having an IQ that put him in the lowest centile of society, he was an oddball fantasist who had falsely claimed to be a member of the SAS and related to pop stars including Freddie Mercury. Uninhibited and garrulous, it was his apparent habit to wander the streets near his home, approaching and talking to people at random. It seemed implausible that this lumbering, rather chaotic misfit could have committed a crime as audacious as this and then not blab to anybody in the months before his arrest. Doubt attended the forensic evidence, too. No trace of guns or ammunition had been found in the search of George's home, and a BBC journalist, Raphael Rao, acquired the opinion of an FBI expert that the microscopic gunpowder evidence could not be unequivocally shown to be such. On that basis, Barry George was awarded a retrial. This time, the only evidence against him was circumstantial, and he was found not guilty and released. He now lives in Ireland with his sister. Ever since. It remains the stated opinion of lead investigator Hamish Campbell that Barry George is the best suspect for Jill Dando's murder. This seems to be the shared view of the Metropolitan Police Force, and, incidentally, Jill's Crime Watch colleague, Nick Ross. And, as such, there doesn't seem to have been much of any push for movement in her case since Bill George's acquittal. Bizarrely, then, the TV presenter who fronted Crime Watch for years while it helped resolve bloody British mysteries seemed destined to herself be a tragic loose end, slain on her doorstep in daylight, with no discernible motive by a killer or killers, unknown or unproven. Bao and Lou, murder of a 27-year-old man whose charred body was found inside his vehicle remains unsolved. Bao and Lou was 27 years old when he was found murdered in Kansas City, Missouri, and despite the efforts of local authorities, the person or persons responsible for his death have yet to be brought to justice. There are a few details available in Lou's case, but what has been reported is that at around 7.13 a.m. on May 31, 2003, Law enforcement officers and the fire department responded to a call about a fire at 1101 Gwinnett. When they arrived on the scene, they noticed a 1992 Acura legend engulfed in flames. 
Upon extinguishing the fire, they found a body inside the vehicle. According to the Kansas City Star, authorities later determined that the body belonged to Lou. The Kansas City Police Department reported that Lou's death is being investigated as a homicide. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Bao and Lou is encouraged to reach out to the cold case squad at 816-234-5136. Kankakee County, Jane Doe, 2002. Death of an unidentified female whose skeletal remains were found near a highway is still unsolved. Kankakee County Jane Doe is an unidentified female who was found dead. Her remains were found near a highway near the Will and Kankakee County line in Illinois more than two decades ago, and her identity is still unknown. There are a few details available in her case, but what police officials have reported is that they found the skeletal remains of a black or African-American woman near Route 45 sometime in October 2002. She was 5 foot 3 inches tall with possibly short, dark hair, and she was between 30 and 40 years of age. Details about how the woman died are either unknown or police officials have not released that information to the public, but investigators believed she died in 2001. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved death of Kankakee County Jane Doe is encouraged to contact Illinois State Police Zone 3 Investigations at 815-698-2672. Norris Evans Murder of a 27-year-old mother of four whose body was found inside her home remains unsolved. Norris Evans was 27 years old when her lifeless body was found inside her residence in Monroe County, New York, nearly five decades ago, and authorities have yet to apprehend the person responsible for her death. On May 22, 1975, Evans's husband went to work at the Rochester Products Division of General Motors while she remained at home on Cron Street in Rochester, caring for their four children. They were two, four, six, and three months old. When his shift ended the following morning, May 23, 1975, just shortly after midnight, he returned to his home and discovered it had been ransacked. He also found his wife dead on the living room floor, according to the Democrat and Chronicle. Evans was naked except for a blouse and a diaper had been wrapped around her ankles. Experts believe she died at least four hours before her husband found her body. An autopsy revealed that she had been stabbed several times in the chest and neck with a butcher knife, which authorities found adjacent to her body. They also located a cast iron frying pan nearby. Officials stated that the children were inside the home during the crime. Considering the killer took an undetermined amount of money from the home, investigators believe robbery may have been the motive behind the killing, as well as sexual assault. Law enforcement officers have not made any arrests in Evans' case. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Norris Evans is encouraged to reach out to the Rochester Police Department at 585-428-7157. Your assistance could be crucial in delivering long-awaited justice for Evans and her family. Shamanica Brown, murder of an eight-year-old girl whose body was found outside a church, remains unsolved. Shamanica Brown was eight years old when she was murdered. Her body was found outside a church in Saginaw, Michigan, more than three decades ago, and the person or persons responsible for her death have yet to be brought to justice. 
There are a few details available in Shamanica's case, but what has been reported is that on the evening of September 18, 1992, when she went missing, she was last seen playing with several other children at a playground near her home on 12th and Ansley Streets. Shamanica's disappearance prompted a search by law enforcement, and it came to a poignant end four days later, on September 22, 1992, when she was found dead. Her body was discovered on the steps of the former Holy Rosary Catholic Church, which was located in the 700 block of South 13th Street at around 10 a.m. that morning. Upon examining her body, local authorities noticed she had motor oil in her hair. An autopsy revealed that Shamanica, a first-grade student at Heavenrich Elementary School, died from strangulation. Our worst fears have been realized. This is a nightmare, said Shamanica's elementary school principal, Lawrence Wells, according to the Herald, Paladium. Investigators believe that the two suspects in the case are now deceased. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Shamanica Brown is encouraged to contact the Saginaw Police Department at 989-759-1289. I don't normally give my personal opinions on these stories. I just read them, but I have a soft spot for children. Those people who murdered this little girl, I hope they are suffering in the hottest of fires in hell. Charles Turgot Jones, murder of a 19-year-old man whose body was found in a shallow grave, remains unsolved. Charles Turgot Jones was 19 years old when he was murdered in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, more than four decades ago, and the person responsible for his death has yet to be brought to justice. At around 11.30 p.m. on November 7, 1978, Jones left his girlfriend's house on McGothy Bridge Road in Pasadena and was expected to arrive home the next morning, according to the Baltimore Sun. When he failed to make it to his destination on November 8th, his parents contacted the Baltimore City Police Department and reported him missing. Two days later, on November 10th, police officials received a call about an abandoned vehicle a 1971 Red Dodge Colt in a wooded area on Maryland Route 648 near Mountain Road in Glen Burnie. The vehicle belongs to Jones. When they arrived on the scene, they searched the car and noticed bloodstains on one of the seats and splattered blood on the door. And about 500 yards away, they found Jones's body buried in a shallow grave. An autopsy revealed that Jones died from multiple gunshot wounds to the chest, and he had also been stabbed. There have been no arrests, and Jones's case has gone cold. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Charles Turgot Jones is encouraged to contact the Ann Anderle County Police at 412-222-4731. To remain anonymous, call their tip line at 410-222-4700. Felicia Hines, murder of a 24-year-old woman who was found inside a vehicle, remains unsolved. Felicia Hines was 24 years old when she was murdered in Hillsborough County, Florida, more than two decades ago, and the person responsible for her death has yet to be brought to justice. There are a few details available in Hines' case, but what has been reported is that on the night of December 7, 2001, she was sitting in the passenger seat of a 1999 Isuzu Amigo. Her boyfriend was driving. They were near North 34th Street and East Comanche Avenue in Tampa when he heard a noise. He thought the SUV had backfired, but when he turned to look at Hines, he knew something was amiss because she was slumped over. 
He soon realized that Hines had been shot, and the noise he heard was a gunshot, according to the Tampa Bay Times. It is unknown how many times Hines was shot and where, but she was rushed to Tampa General Hospital, where she succumbed to her injuries. No arrests have been made, and her case ultimately went cold. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Felicia Hines is encouraged to contact the Tampa Police Department's Unsolved Homicides Unit at 813-898-1438. Kelly Robinson, 22-year-old, found in gravel pit. While reading Banished and Vermilion, a book about a local cold case, another local unsolved mystery is mentioned. The murder of Kelly Robinson. If you are not familiar with the part of the country where South Dakota, Minnesota, and Iowa intersect, there are a lot of gravel pits in the area. Kelly Robinson was found floating in one of those on May 28, 1984. She was only 22, and authorities believe she was murdered because she had died of asphyxiation. Before she died, she was living in Soy Falls, South Dakota. Her body was found about a half hour away outside of Luverne, Minnesota. The book cites a 1997 article about her case, and that's really the only article I've been able to find. At that time, it looks like investigators suspected a current South Dakota penitentiary inmate of killing her, but had no real evidence for it. The book also cites a letter written by David Lichen, who claimed to have heard rumors that an off-duty police officer killed Kelly. Lichen also said he knew the inmate the article referenced and believed him to be innocent. It looks like in 2008, the state of Minnesota tried to renew interest in the case, but I haven't been able to find any other information. Here are my thoughts. Honestly, I don't know if this case is solvable. There isn't a lot of information out there, and before reading about it briefly, I had never heard of it. I'm going to assume most people here are unfamiliar with this area of the country. Where she lived and where her body was found are about a half an hour away from each other, and the state of Iowa is also incredibly close. Someone living in the northwest corner of Iowa could have driven to Soy Falls and kidnapped Kelly, take her to Laverne and murdered her, and arrive back home in maybe two hours tops. The fact that her case involves at least two states complicates the investigation and possibly hindered it. Also, I don't know where she lived and worked in Soy Falls, but I-90 runs from Soy Falls to Laverne, and this could have just been a crime of opportunity for a traveling killer. Even though it's unlikely her case will ever be solved, I at least wanted to bring to light and have a few more people think of her. I also want to see if anyone knows anything else, or has their own theories. Sandra Bush, murder of a 21-year-old woman whose body was found in a field, remains unsolved. Sandra Bush was 21 years old when she was murdered. Her body was found by two hunters in Tarrant County, Texas, four decades ago, and the person responsible for her death has yet to be brought to justice. In 1980, Bush graduated with honors from O.D. Wyatt High School and she went on to college to study journalism. She reportedly dropped out after completing one year of college. Bush landed a job thereafter, working as a receptionist at a medical office. She also had a boyfriend, but they broke up several months before she vanished. On the evening of November 17, 1983, Bush was at her home in a 3300 block of Cutter Street in Fort Worth when she received a phone call from an unknown person. She left the home wearing a pink pantsuit and never returned. 
That's when a relative contacted the police department and reported her missing, prompting a search by law enforcement. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Bush's vehicle, a tan 1979 Chevrolet Monte Carlo, was found the day after she disappeared. It was parked outside Eve's Bar on Refugio Street. Bush would seldomly go to bars, but whenever she did, it would have been the bar that was miles from where her vehicle was found. Police officials searched the vehicle, but they didn't find any fingerprints. It was after they discovered a yellow pillow in the trunk stained with blood that they realized that the car had been wiped clean. Weeks went by, and there was still no sign of Bush, but her relatives and friends were still hopeful that she was still alive. One of her friends stated in 1994 that San was so full of life and laughter, the uncertainty just hurt so bad sometimes that I find myself crying, but it still hasn't hit me yet. On the night of January 2, 1984, Bush was found dead in a field located in the 4800 block of Decatur Road. Two men hunting deer were on a property with high grass when they encountered her decomposed body. She was partly clothed and had debris on top of her. Due to the state of decomposition, the medical examiner could not immediately make an identification. An employee of the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office stated that Bush was ultimately identified through a photographic process of overlaying negatives on photos of Bush and the body. The medical examiner ruled her death as a homicide after an autopsy revealed she died of being strangled with a cord. In 1984, Crime Stoppers offered a $1,000 reward for more information in the case as they believe someone saw Bush with her killer on the day she went missing. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Sandra Bush is encouraged to contact the Fort Worth, Texas Police Department's Homicide Unit at 817-392-4330. Bizerta Bellany, murder of a 29-year-old woman whose body was found inside her residence, remains unsolved. Bizerta Bellany was 30 years old when she was murdered. Her body was found inside her residence in Orange County, Florida, more than two decades ago, and the person or persons responsible for her death have yet to be brought to justice. On February 27, 1996, officers were dispatched to a home in the 6,000 block of Edgebrook Drive in Orlando after receiving a 911 call about a shooting. When they arrived on the scene, they found Bellany dead. Police learned through an investigation that at around 3 a.m., two suspects forced their way into Bellany's home and went to the bedroom of a man she and her aunt shared the house with. They demanded he give them money, and he obliged. When they went to Bellany's bedroom, where she and her infant child slept, they asked for money, but she refused to give it to them. A struggle ensued. It was during that time that Bellany was fatally shot, and according to the Orlando Centennial, the suspects fled the scene thereafter. Her baby was unharmed. Bellany was born in Haiti, but she moved to Florida in 1995 and began working at Walt Disney World hotels along with her roommates. Orange County Sheriff Sergeant Mike Easton stated that, These are workers. These are people who are trying to make it. They were each contributing money to their respective families. He added that the victim's aunt was planning a trip back to Haiti, and several of their family members and friends had given them envelopes of money to take to relatives. Investigators believed that the suspects knew about the money and decided to steal it from them. The amount of money they stole is unknown. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Bizerta Bellany is encouraged to contact the Orange County Sheriff's Department at 407-836-4357 or the Central Florida Crime Line at 877-292-4330. 
1-800-423-TIPS. Johnny Levitt, murder of a 33-year-old man whose body was found in the driveway of a home, remains unsolved. Johnny Lee Levitt was 33 years old when he was murdered. His body was found in a driveway in Fulton County, Georgia, five decades ago. The person responsible for his death has yet to be brought to justice. In the early morning hours of August 18, 1973, Law enforcement officers responded to a call about a deceased person in the driveway of a home in the 900 block of Blue Ridge Avenue Northeast in Atlanta. The homeowner who called 911 told authorities that when he returned home at around 1.20 p.m., he found the victim laying face down clutching a 22 caliber automatic pistol in his hand. He said he did not know the victim who was later identified as Levitt, of an unknown address, and he died from a gunshot wound to the back. A neighbor down the street said she recognized him as the man who entered her house without her consent the previous morning. According to the Atlanta Constitution, the woman went to her kitchen at around 1.30 a.m. and saw him standing there. To prevent her from screaming, he choked her, but the chaos woke up her husband and son. They chased him out of the house. Levitt had a criminal record. He had been charged with burglary and assault with intent to murder. Sergeant Berlin Compton said, We are considering the possibility that Levitt may have been shot by a private citizen in the area, as he may have been attempting an illegal entry. Anyone with any information regarding the unsolved murder of Johnny Levitt is encouraged to contact the Atlanta Police Department Criminal Investigations Division at 404-546-4236. Angela Jones Murder of a 17-year-old girl whose body was found in a creek remains unsolved. Angela Lanelli Jones was 17 years old when she was murdered. Her body was found in shallow water in Tarrant County, Texas, more than four decades ago, and the person responsible for her death has yet to be brought to justice. In the early morning hours of February 23, 1982, two men went to Angela's apartment. Located in the 2800 block of Love Chapel Court in Fort Worth and forced their way in through the front door. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, the men kidnapped Angela, a junior at Dunbar High School, from her bedroom. Her mother was at work, but her sister, who was reportedly in the room, watched on as they dragged her through the hallway. They then carried her to their white vehicle and drove away. After reporting the kidnapping to the police, Angela's mother claimed that they were slow with the investigation. They, the police, said it was a game and she staged it, said Angela's mother. Investigators stated that some of Angela's classmates said they spotted her several times after she had been kidnapped. Two of her classmates claimed to have seen her on February 27th at a roller rink located at the 1000 block of Miller Avenue. Another teen said she saw Angela playing pool on March 3rd at Weldon's Cafe located in the 2100 block of Vaughn Boulevard. On the afternoon of March 12, 1982, Angela was found dead. Her partially decomposed body was found in a small creek at the 2100 East Richmond Avenue. Her hand was holding onto a large tree root. The medical examiner stated that identification was delayed because of a lack of dental and fingerprint records. Angela was ultimately identified through spinal x-rays. An autopsy revealed that Angela's cause of death was asphyxiation by drowning and the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office subsequently ruled her death as a homicide.
They also determined that she had been dead between eight days and three weeks before her body was found. An investigator stated that they were approaching this case from the standpoint that she was murdered by the person or persons who abducted her. On September 28, 1982, a then 47-year-old man was charged with Angela's drowning death. He was booked in the Tarrant County Jail, where he was held on a $10,000 bond. The charges were presumably dropped, considering Angela's case is still unsolved. In 1983, Crime Stoppers offered a $1,000 reward for more information that would help solve her case. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Angela Jones is encouraged to contact the Fort Worth, Texas Police Department's Homicide Unit at 817-392-4330. John Henry Flood, murder of a 19-year-old young man whose body was found at the gas station where he worked, remains unsolved. John Henry Flood was 19 years old when he was murdered at his place of employment in Clearwater, Florida, more than 40 years ago, and the person responsible for his death has yet to be brought to justice. At around 7 p.m. on January 8, 1982, Flood, of Largo, was working alone as an attendant at the Amico gas station in the 1400 block of Bel Air Road when he was shot in his chest. Witnesses stated that after the shooting, they saw a man running towards a tan or dark-colored vehicle. He was then seen driving away from the scene, the Tampa Bay Times reported. When paramedics arrived... They performed life-saving measures before transporting Flood to Clearwater Community Hospital. Less than two hours after the suspected attempted robbery, Flood was pronounced dead. The owner of the gas station told investigators that Flood had been working for his company for less than a week. He also stated that Flood was told to keep $60 in his pocket to make change, and everything else was supposed to be put inside a safe. Detectives later questioned a then 24-year-old man who had been arrested for robbing a restaurant two days before Flood was shot and killed. The previous month, he was charged with robbing a 7-Eleven food store. During the interrogation, the man told authorities that he had nothing to do with Flood's death. He was in Baltimore at the time of the shooting. Flood's case eventually went cold. Anyone with any information regarding the unsolved murder of John Henry Ford is encouraged to contact the Clearwater Police Hotline at 725-562-4080 or send an email to tips at myclearwater.com. Gandhi Kadia, murder of a 22-year-old aspiring rapper whose body was found engulfed in flames at a cemetery, remains unsolved. Gandhi Kadia was 22 years old when he was murdered. His body was found at a historic cemetery in Providence County, Rhode Island, 10 years ago, and the person responsible for his death has yet to be brought to justice. At around 10.30 p.m. on March 20, 2013, firefighters were called to the Pocasset Cemetery in Cranston on Dyer Avenue about a brush fire near the entrance. When they extinguished the fire, they discovered the body, which was later identified through fingerprints as that of Kadia. He was living in the Providence area and had an eight-month-old daughter at the time of his death. Kadia was in the process of turning his life around. According to his instructor at the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence, he was one class away from obtaining his GED. I think the stress of not having a place to stay recently had really taken a toll, but he would still come for his GED classes, 
said the executive director of the school. That kind of stamina is pretty great. He was a leader. If someone missed a class, he would say, let's call them. The teachers feel a terrible loss. His classmates also feel a very terrible loss. He was also an inspiring rapper known as Young Shod and had music videos uploaded on YouTube. According to the medical examiner's office, Kadia's autopsy showed that his death was caused by ligature strangulation, which occurred before his body was set on fire. The detective stated that it is their belief Kadia was murdered somewhere else before his body was brought to the cemetery and set on fire. They also believe that Kadia's murder may have been gang-related, as he was reportedly affiliated with the C-Block gang in Providence. However, Kadia's family members stated that he wasn't affiliated with any gangs in the area. WPRI News reported that one relative said, I just want them to know that he was gentle, he was loving, he was caring, he was kind. Anyone with any information regarding the unsolved murder of Gandhi Kadia is encouraged to contact the Cranston Police Department at 401-942-2211. Sandra Whitlock murder of a 29-year-old woman whose body was found in a river remains unsolved. Sandra Whitlock was 29 years old when she was murdered. Her body was found in a river in Reno, Nevada, more than three decades ago, and the person responsible for her murder has yet to be brought to justice. On February 23, 1985, law enforcement was dispatched to the Truckee River near Painted Rock, on Interstate 80 after receiving a call about a body in the river. When officers arrived on the scene, they spotted the fully clothed body of a woman submerged in water near rocks. The body was later identified as that of Whitlock, who lived in the area on Rhonda Way, while her ex-boyfriend and her children were living in South Carolina. An autopsy revealed that she died from a gunshot wound to the back, and she was the fourth murder victim the city had within nine days. Investigators are unsure when the shootings occurred, where it happened, why it happened, and who did it. They did, however, uncover that she had been reported missing earlier that year. On January 16, 1985, Whitlock's boyfriend told law enforcement that he last saw her on the afternoon of January 5th. She was downtown, about to head to a casino to gamble, according to the Reno Gazette Journal. He also mentioned that she was wearing designer jeans, a suede jacket, and they were supposed to meet up later that night. She never arrived. In May 1989, a $1,000 reward was offered for more information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for Whitlock's murder. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Sandra Whitlock is encouraged to contact the Washoe County Sheriff's Office Detective Division at 775-328-3320. Mark Heimbau, 11. Missing boy reportedly last seen at a park near his home. Mark Heimbaugh was born on May 23, 1980. He was 11 years old when he went missing from Cape May County, New Jersey, more than 30 years ago. And despite the efforts of local authorities, his whereabouts are still unknown. On the afternoon of November 25, 1991, Mark returned to his middle township neighborhood after attending school. He was a sixth grade student at the alternative school in the Crest Haven complex. 
After getting off the school bus, Mark, who was wearing a blue sweatshirt, a gray jacket, gray pants, and white L.A. gear shoes, noticed a brush fire on Bayshore Road, according to My Central Jersey. As he was walking to his home on Sunray Beach Boulevard in Delhaven, where he lived with his mother, Maureen Heimbog, he saw her outside. That's when he told her that he wanted to watch firefighters extinguish the fire. The press of Atlantic City reported that Mark watched the brush fire before he began walking home. He was a curious George, said Marine, who also said he was quiet and sensitive. Marine reportedly allowed him to go, and she also told him that she was leaving to run an errand and would return shortly. He said... Okay, Mom, which turned out to be the last words he said to her. She thought the errand wouldn't take long, but she was gone longer than she expected. When Marine finally made it home, Mark was nowhere to be found. There was also no evidence suggesting he made it inside. Mark, who reportedly had behavioral issues due to a chemical imbalance in his bloodstream, was supposed to take his medicine twice a day. When he hadn't returned home by the time it got dark outside, Marine reported him missing, which prompted a massive search involving law enforcement, hundreds of volunteers, and canines and bloodhounds. Flyers containing Mark's picture and information were also posted throughout the county. According to an employee at Cape May County Park South, Mark was last seen at the park at around 4 p.m. that day playing with a girl believed to be around the same age as him. She was never identified. During their search, authorities found footprints they believed were left behind by Mark. A firefighter also discovered one of his shoes on the beach, about half a block from his home. Maureen said, I got excited thinking, he's got to be out there. There's his sneaker. In 1992, it was reported that two teenage boys claimed to have seen Mark talking to a white man with brown hair and bushy eyebrows shortly before he disappeared. The man was inside a white or gray vehicle. Police officials then set up a checkpoint along Bayshore Road and showed passing motorists a composite sketch of the man wanted for questioning in Mark's disappearance. Investigators received hundreds of tips, which they followed up on, but it didn't get them any closer to finding out what happened to Mark. In June 1993, Mark's picture was featured in an episode of The Young and the Restless, a CBS daytime soap opera, while actor and recording artist Michael Damien performed a song. Mark's case was later tied to a man named Thomas Buttcabbage who was serving 36 years in prison after he was convicted of a child molestation in 1999. Authorities said a male prostitute came forward and said Butkovich showed him a video of a child being sexually abused, and he said the child looked like Mark. Butkovich was never charged, but in 2016, he was considered a person of interest. Chief Christopher Lusner was the Middle Township Police Department. He had this to say. If anyone knows of any links to Cape May County with Thomas Butkovich, we want to hear from you. I was in high school when this happened, so it hits home. My brother was friends with Mark, Lusner added. In 2021, Mark's mother said, He was taken, but I don't know why. There's a lot of theories and I don't know why, what it was. That's why I'm hoping someone will come forward with, with any information. I'm hoping. In 2023, law enforcement announced that they would be using new technology, Bali Artificial Intelligence, and they were hoping that it would help bring closure to Mark's case. In a release, Lusner said, I want to thank the Volley team and Microsoft for partnering with us on this important project. It is important that we use every available resource and the latest technology to help us find Mark. 
My hope is this pilot program will help us solve Mark's case and be used as a model to help with other cold cases. Law enforcement initially investigated his case as a runaway, but it soon became apparent that he was a victim of kidnapping, which would have taken place around the time traffic was redirected to his neighborhood after the brush fire. Mark is described as a white or Caucasian male with freckles, red hair, and blue eyes. He also weighed 85 pounds and was 4 feet tall. When he went missing, he had recently recovered from a broken left foot. An age aggression photo of Mark shows what he would have looked like at age 40. Anyone with information regarding the disappearance of Mark Heimbaugh is encouraged to contact the Middle Township Police Department at 609-465-8700. And that brings a close to these True Unsolved Mysteries Volume 13 Stories. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed these cases. In the meantime, please remember to take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all.
America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.